Welcome to a journey through sport. Um, sorry about the uh, lack of um, episodes coming this way. I just think that yeah, life has got in the way at the moment. But hope we are back, and I'm glad to welcome back uh, for a second part, um, Gary Faber. How you doing? Hello, mate. Yeah, not too bad, thanks. Um, it's been a little while, like you say. I think the world's the world's been going in motion, isn't it? But nice to come back on. Yeah, definitely. I, yeah, like I said, I thoroughly enjoy doing these podcasts, but um, yeah, like I said, life just gets in the way, and then unfortunately, something has to take a hit. And at the moment, it's the podcast. But like I said, we're back. I'll try and get them done when, whenever I can. Really. Are you um? How are you holding up? Yeah, good. Yeah, good, mate. Um, been busy. Um. I think since the last time we spoke, um, my role with uh, the England amputee football team has picked up. Um, we've had a lot more camps. We've been away on a tournament, uh, which was really good. Came second out of six teams, so had some great success. But at the same time, I suppose, um, for sort of people listening in, quite stressful. You know, you think you jet off to Poland for a few days and uh, you have a bit of fun, but it was it was quite full on quite tiring quite demanding but um, all part of the process really yeah and this is what um today's well to this episode podcast is going to be be about it's going to be about obviously working in first team football and obviously an insight into working yeah internationally as well so and well hopefully the aim for this is to help whoever if there's people there that want to or who aspire to be a um whether that's a therapist or a a physiotherapist, a sports science strength conditioning coach, this this could help them out, or hopefully sports um, therapists, physio, physiotherapists, um, again, sports science and stuff, listen, and hopefully they can share the same experiences or yeah, maybe learn something themselves or hopefully even get in touch and share their experiences. Yeah, exactly. I think that's what it's about as well, isn't it? Um, I think I touched upon in the last podcast, I had good people around me that helped me through my journey. Um and it's nice to then think that even if a handful of people listened to something like this and learned something or it helped them shape their decisions, um, you know, it's, it's well, you know, well worthwhile doing, I think. Actually, for the listeners then, for those who haven't listened to the uh, first part of, with, with you, Gary, could you um, just give a quick recap of, of, um, of what your previous experiences and what you're doing now? Yeah, of course. Um, I'll do. I'll do a whistle stop tour. So, um, I'm I'm a fully qualified physio now. My current role is as a senior physio with the England amputee national team. Um, that's in a part time capacity. So we do international camps, um, sort of monthly, and an online program um, because they're part time sort of athletes. Um, I was previously the last couple of years prior to that working at Charlton as one of the first team physios. Um, initially full-time through COVID and then part-time and reduced that down as, as the club, you know, didn't need. Uh, prior to that, I was head of medical, so head physio at Gillingham. Prior to that, I spent several years in Charlton's academy and sort of during those academy years and early years, um, I've done 16 and a half years in total across NHS as a physio. And now I also work privately uh, for myself with a business partner. Excellent. How how is the new role going with, uh, with um, England? 
It's it's really good. It's really interesting. And I think in comparison to what we'll probably speak about later in a traditional sort of first team role, it's very different. You have to be very adaptive, I think, because we only meet one weekend a month. That weekend is Friday evening through till Sunday evening. Um, so a lot of the programme is reliant as well on players reporting to us, attending Zoom meetings, um, do a lot of strength and conditioning sessions and education and stuff sort of remotely um, because players are dotted all around the country, just like the sort of regular internationals. Um, but when they come to camp, it's still the same kind of atmosphere that you would get within a first team setting. You just get less exposure face to face. So I think from a physio perspective, it keeps you on your toes. You have to really think about what someone's telling you. You have to really kind of dig deep with some questions um, and again, spent sort of countless hours and minutes on the phone, um, sort of doing phone assessments, um, some Zoom assessments, you know, players will send you pictures and things through. Um, and, you know, it, it, it gives them a real good accountability, though, because you're not there on their shoulder all the time, like in a traditional first team role. They do have to get on with it and they do have to report things like their runs via Strava or um, Train My Athlete or whatever program they're using at the time. So it's um it's a nice challenge, a nice challenge and a very different one, which I'm, I'm loving. Um, like I say, we recently had a tournament which presents with different challenges in itself traveling and prepping for traveling and, and while you're actually out there but we came through that with no injuries um no sort of niggles um and, and quite a successful tournament coming second out of six teams excellent what well, was it a shock to the system when you when you um started this role then so obviously you're used to the um usual face-to-face -face stuff but now obviously it's done over over the phone um were you, was you prepared for that or um, I was, yeah, I, I was to a degree because when I when I sort of interviewed for the role and and then when I was offered the role, I was aware of what it would entail. And I think having sort of been a football fan myself for many years, you know yourself the likes of Harry Kane and and the England squad. They'll they'll meet sort of intermittently. So I kind of already had an awareness from my jobs within sport what an international program looks like. It was just um, it was just adapting to that. Um, sort of initially, I think you you kind of cram a lot into uh, a weekend education wise for the players, and I think getting to know a whole new set of players um, that are sort of international standard was good. I never felt um, like it was a difficult step to take; it was just a different step to take, and I think that comes through just confidence within your own ability, really. Yeah, how do you deal with that? Um... Obviously, that short face to um, face to face action. So I think when I was at Cholton, uh, players would come in um, before training and get seen too. So they're on the training pitch for half eight, whenever it was. Is is that a similar process with what you're doing now? Or um, yeah, so if, what I'll do, I'll, ru I'll run you through like a typical sort of international weekend. So um, we meet up in crew. Um, that's sort of our our sort of international base. It's a very good facility. There's a fantastic gym. Um, we've got adapted classrooms for sort of uh, facilities, meeting rooms. There's some really good sort of AstroTurf pitches, indoor facilities. So we tend to arrive for six o'clock on a Friday evening. So it tends to be a bit of a drive or a train journey. Uh, the lads will get a bit of downtime because they haven't seen each other for a while while we kind of prepare, set up, get our mobility areas and treatment areas and things operational. 
Um, then they'll have sort of any pre-training treatments and niggles. So you'll find a lot of players, if they've had quite a long car journey uh, or train journey, they'll dip in and get a bit of sort of soft tissue work or a bit of or sort of assisted stretching and things like that. They've got they've got guns to use. They've got other bits and pieces like foam rollers and, and stretch bands and mats. Um, we've got really good sort of team around them with S&C. Uh, we've got a nutritionist. Then they'll do like a light training session on the Friday. Um, then get off to the hotel for a good rest. Saturday is sort of the most demanding day. They tend to start breakfast about half seven. Um, they do a double training session on the Saturday, um, which is quite full on and heavy. So they'll do a lot of fitness work, a lot of ball work. The coaches really try and utilise that that big sort of day to get the work into them and uh, and sort of lessons they want them to learn. Um, we finish the day about 9.30 p.m. So things are staggered throughout the day in terms of preparation, recovery sessions. Um, and I tend to lead the Saturday evening. We do like a yoga and breathing and stretch session to sort of wind down from the intensity of the work. Then they'll get off to bed again. Um, and on the Sunday, they'll either do, depending on what the management have arranged, they'll either play um, like a game. Um, they've played um, Everton amputees, Northwest amputees. We've played Ghana. And they, they'll they'll try to kind of match up a selection of opposition um, because we're preparing for the World Cup later in the year. And if there's no opposition or an opposition has pulled out, then it tends to be another training session, small-sided games on the Sunday. So as a workload for the players, it's surprisingly quite high. But as I said, I think with it being a part-time program, they have to try to get the work in where they can. And then I know the players do like an online S&C program. They do a lot of rehab if they need to. Although luckily we don't really have anyone on rehab at the moment. Um, and then there's a um, a fitness coach that we've got um, who tends to invite them to the gym that he lives at locally. So some of the Northern boys um, go and do some extra additional gym work with him. So, I think it's just about being um, being on hand and making yourself available for these lads because the the, the easy thing is, I mean, at their level, they, they want to be there. They want to be the best. You know, you, you look through some of their social medias or you have conversations or you, you watch the interviews that they put out on the England page and they're all proud to represent their country. So having to motivate a player to want to be there and do their work isn't the challenge. It's just, it's just the being there and being as open and receptive to them as possible for their needs. Yeah. By the sounds of it, the logistics of everything as well with the limited face to face. Yeah. So, I think so. Do you, do, sorry, do you get phone? Um, do you get phone calls like during like a normal work week for you if you're not there? Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, that's something that I, you know, was very keen to establish from the moment I set foot into that international program. I wanted the lads to be able to trust me um, and know that no matter what, you know, whether it's a WhatsApp, a phone call, a Zoom meeting, um, myself and the wider medical team, we always make ourselves available. Um, you know, it's, it's trying to reduce any thought process and stress that the players have got. So if they are away from camp, but they know that they can pick the phone up or just drop us a text on WhatsApp, and start a conversation or you know fix up a meeting they're they're more likely to to be open and not carry niggles into games and tournaments whereas if if that support network isn't there you're looking at then sort of taking players on who might be carrying niggles that can affect them sort of mentally as well as physically 
So um, we just try to be very sort of open. And it, it's got like, um, for want of a better description, it's got a very nice family feel. You know, there's there's a mixture now. The programme has gone through a bit of a a sort of a turning point where some players left the programme prior to me starting and sort of previous staff um, who were a very successful group and a very experienced group. And now there's sort of a handful of experienced pros and a lot of youngsters working their way into the national setup. So you'll find the older ones look after the younger ones. The younger ones are good for the older ones. Um, and just everybody gets on with everybody, I think, because it's because it's uh, the level it is and the, the goals are very common. It's um, It doesn't feel like work. It just feels like you're meeting up with you know friends you've known for years and you've all got a common goal to just get your head down for the weekend and work. Why is it important to have that kind of environment? I think really just so that there's no pressure on the players. I think if if you can create a very open and honest environment, one as a bunch of staff, we're gonna we're gonna get the the response from the players we want. They're gonna come to us. They're gonna ask us questions. They're gonna speak to me about what they can do better. They're gonna speak to the coach about you know the analysis side of things is there things they can improve on they're gonna they're gonna you know use the voice of the nutritionist to, to tidy up their nutrition so i think creating that environment gives them the platform to go on and succeed and i think one thing that we kind of established from the tournament we recently came back from is that everything ran to sort of military precision it was very successful like i said no injuries we won a lot of games. Uh, the boys learned a lot of lessons. They went 2-0 down in one game, came back to 2-2. They won on penalties. So when you speak to the coaches, they were happy they went 2-0 down because then they had to dig in and they had to sort of find that inner strength to recover. So, you know, I think when you say about why is it important, it's just important to give them the platform to succeed. And I think if you do everything to an elite standard and you you give them the tools and that they can see you're putting the effort in as staff, then they're going to replicate that as players, hopefully. What did you specifically learn from that tournament? Um, me, myself, just, I think it had been, it had probably been about four years since I'd been away on like an international tournament. Um, I'd done a few with Charlton's Academy and, um, I'd not been on an actual tour with sort of men's first team football because of um, just either the club I was at, it wasn't an option or, you know, then COVID hit um, and then it just never occurred. So the shock to me was the long days, the early, very early mornings. We were up at 5.30 in the morning to get prepared. We were finishing at 10 at night and it was just the lessons that I learned is just how you can drag yourself through. Like I said earlier on, when it doesn't feel like work, the 5.30 alarm doesn't seem so painful as it would back here on a rainy day in England or, you know, the long day where you, you, you're kind of shattered and, you know, the workload has been huge for the day. You don't mind. You kind of, you steal those five minutes, ten minutes to put your feet up, to get a shower, to have a coffee, you know, with the lads outside, that kind of thing. But it's just how resilient you can be as a staff member as well. And I think what happens is when you're in that tournament situation, again, the lads do recognise that they get more downtime than the staff. 
and they appreciate the staff's roles a bit more, I think. So for me, we came off the back of it and there was a lot of respect gained from the lads for what we do. What would be one, one thing that for the World Cup coming up, one thing you'd look to improve on? Oh, that's a tough question. But I think there were a, there's a few sort of uncontrollables. So things like, you know, turning up to a stadium and, you know, the door being locked or the change room not being cleaned. So you're having to hang around and it eats into your sort of itinerary and your time schedule. So we took some lessons away from it. But from a therapy perspective, we actually reflected on it in a meeting after the tournament. And it was it's just small little things really it's just um sort of communications timings um you know using a central point you know there's a head of medical there's myself there's a junior physio there's a sports therapist so you'll find that instead of players going to different people it's just streamlining the process and working well as a team so again within the small therapy team having an openness and an honesty with communication um it's just trying to, you know, streamline a process, for example, of everything goes through to, say, myself or the head of medical, and then we can then discuss with a wider team rather than three or four players trusting one player, uh, person more or three or four going to another or three or four not even presenting. So we just try to, again, you know, reflect on the overall process. But as I say, as a tournament, it was very successful. There was no niggles, no injuries picked up. You know, we we literally dealt with mainly recovery sessions and a couple of bumps and bruises. But every sort of squad member of the 13 players came through it unscathed completely, which we felt was reflective of the work we do in preparation for tournaments and ongoing. Um, we kind of just felt that we've got it we've got it pretty good as to what we want them to do and what they're doing. And the fact there was no injuries, we felt that reflected positively, really. There's um yeah two parts I want to bring up there, but the second part is probably more when we talk about working in first team football. Yeah, you mentioned there the um uncontrollables. How how do you deal with the uncontrollables? Because there's probably people listening, or you, you've seen it before football. Everyone thinks it's perfect lifestyle. Players on certain wages and stuff, <laughs> and and stuff yeah. like that. And there's there's nothing to to worry about. But obviously, when when you work there, you know that's completely opposite. So yeah, I just want to know how do you deal deal with those uncontrollables? Um, I think, again, you know, anyone listening that currently works in sport will know that there's something called an EAP, an emergency action plan. So it's a sort of step by step process of how you would deal with a hypothetical situation should it arise. So I think traveling away with those things in place between ourselves and the team doctor, it always gives you a less stressful sort of outlook. Um, I think anything that we would deem as an uncontrollable that, that crops up as a group of staff, including the sort of coaches and the wider teams, you just have to take it for what it is. So if you go into a scenario where, you know, like I said, wherever the, the change room is locked and we can't set up our therapy session, you know, for 15 minutes or, um, or if a player feels a little bit unwell through the night, you just have to respond to the situation at the time. And I think, Again, you'll find that players look to medical staff to be the calm sort of influence to control a situation. And I think that only comes with experience. So I've always been fortunate enough that I've never really got too stressed by any scenario because I think you look at life as everything can be dealt with. 
it might not be the way you want it to happen or, or you know the scenario you want to occur but I think the preparation is key and that's one that's the take-home message I think for anyone that's just starting their journey in sport is always have a good action plan you always have that good emergency action plan and and just communicate well I think again if if a player was unwell we communicate it to the manager the manager you know obviously asks if you need any support you tend to say no we've got this we'll deal with it but then at least he knows you know they know and nothing can really spiral out of control because I think things only sort of lose control when you lose control yourself but when you do a lot of your trauma training and your advanced life savings and, and you know all your qualifications for these types of roles a lot of it is kind of scenario based around that as well. So you gain a confidence and a structure. And if you keep to a structure in your head, um, like a step-by-step process, I don't think you can really often go too wrong. The one thing that with, with the current England role is a lot of people don't realise that the FA don't currently support the England amputee football team. Oh, so, yeah, I thought that when I was looking at it. I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, so they, they used to. And my understanding from what I've been educated is that they stepped away in 2006. And I think there's there's current ongoing talks about in the next sort of couple of years about possibly reabsorbing that programme. But I think it's just to maybe raise a little bit of awareness. So as staff members, we're encouraged because the England amputee football side is, is supported and propped up by a charity. They ask and sort of try and encourage players and staff to try to sort of fundraise to help, you know, with the things, you know, like the cost of flights, tournaments, equipment, wages, that kind of stuff. Um, so I've got I've got a current sort of um, it's like a GoFundMe type page on my Instagram. And it, the difficult thing that we're finding is, is just trying to raise awareness of the sport, because a lot of people, when they sort of ask me about that England role, a lot of them didn't even realise that England have an amputee side and they also don't then realise they've actually been quite a successful side and, and won several tournaments. Um, there's a league structure. You know, a lot of the players play for the likes of Arsenal. Chelsea are starting up an amputee side this year. Um, you've got Newcastle, West Brom. There's a, there's a real sort of infrastructure to it. So it's just really to maybe encourage people to go and check them out. You know, I've they, they'll find on my page a link to the amputee side. Um, and if anyone is interested in sort of sponsoring or donating to them, I'd love to hear from them, really. Yeah, um, if you, um, yeah, but when I um, put this out, I'll put a link into the into the description to go find me link. Oh, that'd be brilliant. Yeah, that'd be cool. It, it, but it's strange, isn't it? Because there are, isn't it like the deaf, deaf disability team and the blind disability team? They're, they're all part of the FA, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Yeah. And the interesting thing is, is um, I think a couple of months ago, we had some people down from the FA. My understanding is that a previous regime at the FA um, pulled funding, basically. Um, I don't know ins and outs, and I wouldn't like to comment on that either. But um, the current sort of FA setup seem a lot more positive about sort of reabsorbing that programme. But like you said, they do have current disability sport um, football sides, sort of within the FA but not the amputee team so like I said I can't comment on history but it's interesting to know that they've they've kind of succeeded over the last sort of 15 years um with a lot of sort of good work from good people behind the scenes so I think that also makes it 
a very interesting job because it's not so much money driven you know it's not a, a big sort of money machine that's sort of cogs are turning around the lads that play they play with passion they play with heart you know they've you know they've you know work their socks off in essentially what what is deemed a disadvantaged environment you know if 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 i lost my leg tomorrow if i hadn't sort of been part of this program i wouldn't have realized that you know amputee football exists and i think that is just that is just one of those things that the the wider sort of teams are trying to work on just getting people to uh, to raise awareness the last um the last European Championships, England made it to the final and lost 2-1 to Turkey. They lost to uh, a last 30 seconds goal um, to lose the trophy. But it was played, I think, in Turkey. And I want to say it was either Galatasaray or Besiktas Stadium in front of 42,000 fans because Turkey are a full-time sort of amputee outfit and they train every day. They're, they're fully paid athletes. Um, and the country go absolutely bonkers for it. So when you compare it to sort of lads that are over here, um, you know, they're playing their amputee league football in front of maybe 50 people. Um, and then they're going off to big tournaments and competing in front of, you know, thousands of fans. I think the the final we played in Poland recently, I think there was about 2,500 fans um, and a great atmosphere. And it was lovely to see people supporting a different area of the sport rather than, you, you know, your traditional England side who no doubt everybody will be supporting at the World Cup later this year. Oh, excellent. Yeah, I didn't realise that about 40,000 in terms of like Turkey and stuff. So No, I know. Are they the big amputee footballing nation like in terms of like your, your Spains, your Germanys? Yeah, so I think, um, again, from my sort of level of understanding, Turkey are the current European champions. Um they're they're sort of the best side. I think Poland are one of the best sides as well. Um, and then I think you've got your likes of I think there's a couple of African teams and South American teams are very very good as well. Yeah. So it'll be a big challenge. And I think if for anyone interested, if they go onto YouTube and you type in England versus Turkey amputee football, I think there's a YouTube clip and you you pick up the um, the vibe that the game throws off. It's um, a very good game. The the fans are going crazy. The intensity and the pace would probably surprise a lot of people because the lads play on crutches. So they've got one leg and they play on their crutches and they can move around. They can really move around. So um, it's impressive. If anyone fancies a watch, I'd highly encourage that they Google it or YouTube it. Yeah, definitely will be. How, how is the uh, progress looking for the World Cup? Um, do you know what? It's been it's been excellent. So the the kind of preparations started in January. Um, they played at the Euros last year and then they had a bit of a break for two, three months from international programme. Picked it up in January and it's got better and better and better. So as the kind of months have rolled on, the relationships have developed, um, the teamwork has developed. You can see the quality of, of the play. The coaching has really kind of been high quality. Um, it's been fantastic, really. There's There's been no real hiccups at all. And the lads went into the Poland tournament with the manager, Owen Coyle Jr., setting no expectation. He just, he, he delivered a message almost and said he doesn't 
care about the results, but he wants them to deliver the plan they've been working on. He wants them to play the way they've been practicing. He wants them to implement the strategies that they've been sort of working on hard. And they did. And um, he was very, very pleased from a coaching perspective with the outcome of that, um, resulting in, you know, reaching the final. I mean, to put it into perspective, there was four or five players that have never played on the international stage for England and they really kind of dug in deep, worked hard, you know, puffed out their chests and got on with it. And like I say, they lost 4-0 in the final and the scoreline wasn't quite reflective of how the game went. So at, at half time in the, the final, um, it was 0-0. And then I think fatigue set in, a little bit of inexperience and Poland scored, you know, a couple of quick goals, then a couple of later goals in the second half and um and and rightfully sort of took the trophy they were a good side they were were good people and they were deserved winners but the lads you know they picked themselves up they dusted themselves down and um they can be nothing but proud of themselves really because development is the key i think the message that we're trying to get into them ahead of the world cup is nothing matters in the run up other than developing and progressing uh, excellent it must have been a a fantastic learning experience for not just the players, but for all the staff involved as well. Yeah. And I mean, again, you know, even, you know, comparing it to a player's perspective, um, just as a member of staff to kind of go away and represent my country. It's something that for my career, when I took the role, it, it felt like a great honour. I think everyone, you know, would, would love to say they've represented their country in no matter what it is. So to say that I've gone to a major tournament with them and, and will go to a major World Cup tournament with them, um, it, it does. It feels like a real privilege. And, uh, you know, one, one that I'm very proud to say that I've done, really. We spoke about working with um, international players, but... In a, in a part-time basis in terms of you seeing face-to-face, very limited time and a lot of contacts over, over the phone. Um, well, obviously, we want to talk about, when you talk about what we spoke about at the start, about working in first-team football and just, yeah, I'm going to probably stick it right on you now. Can you go through like the, uh, the realities of working as a staff member in first-team football? Yeah, of course. So, um, I'll kind of take you back then. So, my very first role um, within first team football um, was as the head physio at Gillingham and that was in the 2019-2020 season. So I took over from a physiotherapist who left just after the start of the season uh, that year and um, Gillingham as a club, um, the chairman's quite open and honest, they don't have a huge budget, they run quite a tight ship, he's he's a very good businessman, the, the football club is a very sort of sustainably run business um, to my understanding but it obviously leaves resources a little bit thin on the ground so the reality there is my first leap into first team football was a bit of a baptism of fire you know you have to really have your wits about you Um, and I felt I'd built up a lot of level of experience um, and organisational skills you know not only through football but my time in the NHS as well and people management um, to then sort of go in and sort of oversee a small team and the pressures the pressures of being in first team football are very different because every single day as a first team physio you're being looked to for decisions 
and whether that's from the players um, discussing a knock or a niggle with you, they they might want some reassurance that although they're a little bit sore or there's a bruise or they're achy or stiff, are they safe to train? Are they going to do any more damage? Um, but equally, you've got pressures from the wider staff, the assistant manager, the manager, the goalkeeping coach, um, you know, is A, B or C training today? You know, if not, why not? And you can find that if you're not a confident clinician, then a role like that could eat you up because if you're if you're hesitant or you're stuttering or you're not sure, the managers just aren't going to be accepting of that. You know, in a first team environment, they want you to be a decision maker. And you also then have to be confident to argue your case. You know, my my scenario at Gillingham is I worked for a manager, Steve Evans, who again was a lovely guy. Um, if things were going well and, you know, results were going your way, um, he would ask you, how are the kids? You know, how was your day off? But if if he was being delivered news that he didn't like, you know, starting centre-backs injured, can't play at the weekend, absolutely no chance he's going to be fit, you'd see a different side of a manager. And I'm sure that most managers are the same. You know, they don't like having their plans altered because their their plans are made off the back of medical plans, science plans and, and sort of wider teams. So you all have to fit in to almost like a big cog, you're, you know, your little cogs to help the big cog turn. And again, you know, I wouldn't have took that role if I was naive or if I didn't know what it entailed. And the reality of it is during that role, I was probably working six, six and a half days a week for ten and a half months, really. Um, and that is just an accepted thing within sport. You know, there wasn't another physio to share days off with. If you're coming back from Sunderland on a Tuesday night and you've got a few, you know, knocks, niggles, you're, you know, you're in on Wednesday while everyone else is off. You know, even if it's for a few hours, you're up again the next day. You're, you're treating the players. You're trying to patch them up to get them through a long season. Um, whereas I think sometimes people think that football and sport in general is very glamorous. And I think if you're in the premiership or the top end of the championship, you've probably got anywhere between five and ten physios at some big clubs. Um, and again, probably a, a little bit more of a peaceful life. The reality down in League One is that you roll your sleeves up, you get your hands dirty. But now, then, if we compare it to your other experiences working first-team football, especially at Cholmond, they were a completely different story, but in the same league. How did you deal with it? So, yeah. yeah, so how did you deal with that? So I was going to ask another question, but I'm going to ask that later on. No, that's all right. So, yeah, so you're right. So um, I then sort of once I left Charlton, um, Gillingham, sorry, I, I moved to back to Charlton. An opportunity came to go over and work with the first team there again. Um, and that was very different because I was then um, like a, a third staff member. So there was a head physio, a full time first team physio. And I was then brought on board initially with sort of full time hours. Um, so the workload is very spread, and like you said, they are they're they're clubs in um the same league or were in the same league at the time, but different budgets really. So I think Charlton, having been sort of previously a Premier League club, they've got slightly better facilities, they've got a slightly better infrastructure that they've held on to, 
Um, but it's still the same challenges, but you've just got a little bit more sort of help and support around you. So, you know, if, if I compare with you, my medical team at Gillingham was myself as the first team physio. Um, we had a sports masseur who came in two hours a day to help with some soft tissue work. And we had a club doctor um, and then we had an on-call dentist. So that was it. Um, at Charlton, when I went over to there, there was uh, the head of medical, the first team physio who was full time. Then there was myself. Um, then you had um, a sports therapist who was in full time. Um, and you had a student as well who came in, was doing a placement. And then you obviously had the wider S&C team. So um, we had a we had a fitness and an S&C coach who did a combined role at Gillingham. But you can see straight away the differences just in the staff in there. So, you know, I was lucky. My time at Gillingham, there was, you know, one major injury and it was a lot of patching the lads up, getting them through. Um, no real injuries to speak of. At Charlton, um, whether it was lucky or not, but with three physios, there was uh, a good sort of amount of injuries. I think there was, you know, anywhere between sort of six and seven on the board. And, um, but like I said, that workload then, you know, is delegated out. So it might be that the head physio has got three of them and that myself and the other physio would have had two. Um, you tend to have a morning medical meeting um, at a club like that where you discuss the workload, you discuss who's achieving what that day, um, who needs to achieve certain sort of parameters and just simple things like if there was a consultant appointment, you know, me being a third member of staff, it was often useful then for the head of medical to ask, could I go to, um, you know, the London sort of consultant appointment, you know, with a player and then they would carry on at the training ground. Whereas previously, you have to try and factor in working out something as simple as when can I go to an appointment with a player that doesn't disrupt the training day and that then just impacts your own day. So like I say at Gillingham, it would have been, I don't know, trying to get a 5pm appointment in London to make sure that you've been in all day, you've worked with the players, you've, you've covered training, then you get off on the train up to London, then you do the appointment, then you get home. Whereas at Charlton, you know, you could schedule a 10am appointment and quite happily go up on the train, meet the player, have a coffee, have a casual sort of appointment, go back to the training ground and knowing that everyone else is getting on with their work. So there's vast differences. And I think you'll find that sort of widespread throughout football. As I said, if you're in the Premier League, I know for a while, I think Southampton have got something like eight first team physios. Um yeah, but you know, you you look at their infrastructure, their academy, the the money that's been invested. Again, it's it, it sort of links to what we said earlier about putting people around players. You know, the more people you put around players, the the, the more kind of chance of success you're going to have. The less stressful staff are going to be. You know, the more successful rehab plans are going to be. So, the the kind of the reality of sport for a staff member compared to a player is that. You only really should go in it if you're prepared to roll your sleeves up and do the dirty work. Because my career, for example, you know, no disrespect to the clubs I've worked at, but, you know, I've worked to League One level and I've loved every minute of it and I've loved my time doing it, but it is hard graft. You know, the salaries aren't great. The hours are long. You often don't really get a day off or, you know, you're asked and expected to be very flexible for 10 and a half months of the year. Um, I wouldn't change it, but I, I know for well I could have earned maybe another 
40% on top if I just wanted to work in a clinic Monday to Friday, nine to five. I could have had a very easy life. So you do, you make a lot of sacrifices personally to achieve things professionally. And I think that's something that I describe it now as like an, a younger person's sort of role. I mean, I'm, I'm 38 and I've got two kids and I'm at a stage of my life where my kids are growing up. They're 10 and 14 and I don't want to miss too much of their life. Whereas, you know, previous staff members I've worked with in first team football have, you know, they've got their own house. They're not married. They haven't got a partner. They haven't got children. So being on the road or being in six and a half days a week doesn't matter too much to them. And I think it's just another lesson that if anyone came to me asking for advice, I'd just say, if you're going to do it, fully commit to it. Um, the one thing for me that sort of made me step away from full time football was you know, I feel like my family life suffered over a period of time. And you just get to a point where as fun as the football is and as great as the buzz is of, of sort of working at the stadium of light in front of 30,000 fans and things like that, you just, you can't help sort of miss the other things, you know, the lazy Sunday morning laying or going out with the kids for breakfast or going on holiday that isn't within a, a time frame of a one month window in May to June. So I just think, you know, I would never discourage someone from working in sport. I would just highlight to them the pros, but also the cons as well, because there are cons. And like I said, you're not going to get rich from it. You're going to have some wonderful experiences, but you just have to really, really think about what you want from your career. From listening or from talking to other people on the on the podcast, I think yeah, that's a definitely a common common thing. It's um, yeah, I think I was having a discussion with somebody the other day about it, and it was the same thing popped up in terms of. I think you're right. It's a it's a young young man's game, especially when not when I say young man's game. It's like you said, there, if you, you haven't got anything on him, it's great. But as soon as you have like yeah. having a family, get a missus, what gets in the way. It does start to become difficult, and yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think for me, I just yeah, I feel like I was missing out on too much. Yeah, and I think that is the reality of it. I mean, like you say, it's it's a young person's game in the sense of a younger person is generally in a better position to accept the downsides of sport. Um, I remember my very first time I was offered a full time role within football was within academy football, so it was a cold miserable January I think I was with Charlton under 16s covering a game that day and the academy manager was sat next to me on the bench and asked me a little bit about what I'm up to and at the time I was working full-time in the NHS um, <clears throat> and I was earning I, I think I think it was around something like 20 28,000 was my full-time salary Monday to Friday nine to five type role and then I was doing four nights a week doing the Charlton academy clinics and match days on a Saturday with the under 16s. So over the course of a season, I was earning about six to 7,000 pound extra. So all in all, I was about 35K was my salary. And I remember him discussing with me that there was a full-time under 18s role coming up and that he felt I'd be really good for it. It'd be a good opportunity. And my first question to him, not because I'm greedy, but it was, what's the salary like? 
and I think it was something like 17 and a half or 18,000. And I said to him very, very sort of openly and honestly, no disrespect, but I can't do it. I'd love it. I, you know, at the time I hadn't worked full time within sport and I was enjoying what I was doing. I would, I would have jumped at the chance if I lived at home and I had minimal bills to pay. But again, being a dad of two with, you know, sole responsibility for all my living costs, I said to him, I just can't do it. You know, you're asking me to go from 35,000 down to 18 and nobody could do that. You know, and I think that's the reality and that's the side of sport. It's, you know, it's my circumstances combined with an industry that obviously can get away with paying smaller salaries or offering great opportunities because to have a football club on your CV, a lot of people would take a lesser salary because that is that is really good for your career. But, you know, I never, ever, ever sort of um, bad mouth any football club I've worked for in terms of the money they've offered because I understand it's a private business. They can offer what they want and that isn't always going to be huge money. So in another industry, you might be rewarded for your ongoing experience and your salary gets higher and higher within sort of professional football it's almost uh this is what we're offering do you want it yes or no and i've always been honest with the people that i've worked with and said i'd love to but no i can't take it because i'm not willing to you know live on the breadline or sacrifice holidays or kids clubs or whatever it is and they've always understood that you know no one's ever put any pressure on me to take a role the roles i've taken have always been my own choice um and again, it's just another thing that I would speak to someone about and say, you know, if you're going to do it, can you live, basically? Because if if by being at work six days a week is going to leave you broke, penniless and, and shattered, you know, you reassess, is it worth it? It might be better to work part time in football um, and go to, say, National League South for a couple of seasons, but have a day job. So you still get, you know, the benefits of sport, you get the experience and then your situation might be different and you step up the ladder. So, you know, I've, I've made many connections over the years. I've spoken to many other therapists at many different levels of, of football. And, and it is a bit of a widespread sort of, um, a bit of a gripe really that the money's never great, but there's something about football that once you've experienced it, it kind of pulls you back. You know, there's, there's a real sort of adrenaline rush about it, even as a staff member. Yeah, I hope, yeah, hope people listening got their pen and papers out because it's definitely a, it's one of the most important factors that you, I think you need to take in. Yeah, very, yeah. very much so. And, and uh, you know, look, I mean, in current times, you know, everyone knows the cost of living has gone up. So I think, again, you factor those decisions in, in salaries you're being offered. But at the same time, money isn't everything. You know, I, I left the NHS I left a very sort of safe, safe, steady job to go full time into football because I wasn't happy. You know, I, I didn't like being in the hamster wheel of, of the NHS. It, it was it became quite a monotonous sort of depressing environment to be in. You know, no, no sort of natural light, no open windows, you know, every 30 minutes back to back to back, seeing a new patient or a follow up patient. And there's only so much of that you want to take. You know, so I, I, you know, I actually transitioning from that, I think I went across from a good NHS salary and I think I only went up by about two and a half thousand pounds a year into my first full time role within sport. So, again, it wasn't about the money, 
I then relished the opportunity to be in the gym, in the swimming pool with a player, um, in the treatment room, out on the training pitch, on a coach, you know, because don't forget part of your role of being paid, you know, I'm talking about it's hard work, but you know, on a six hour coach trip to Sunderland, you've got your feet up. You've, you're probably watching some downloaded episodes of Netflix. So, you know, you take the rough of the smooth and, you know, I chose to go into that environment and step away from a clinical environment that was very safe, you know, safe pension, safe salary, you know, a bit of, bit of overtime if I wanted it. But when I say money's not everything that, that wasn't fulfilling me professionally, whereas football was very, very fulfilling. Definitely um, relate to that. I think for me, I think it started off like as a hobby. And then obviously from previous episodes, what I've mentioned in that mental health one, uh, I think that's when um, it probably got a bit too much for me. And then for, well, I, guess, I guess for those reasons, I think the thing I still need to look at is that uh, I'm, I'm still 50-50. We have to get, we have to get back in. So there's some days yeah. where you miss it and it's like, because it is match days are brilliant. And and stuff, but then there's just other days where one, you like for example, can't be I can't be bothered with the hassle. Two, I like, I like going home in an evening after work. I don't like being being able to do what I want to do. Do you know what I mean? Having my weekends free. I'm yeah, absolutely really stuck on that knife's edge at the moment, and it's something. Yeah, I I can completely relate to that, and again, that's something that is worth you know having lived on both edges. You know for many years I held two jobs so I then forgot what it was like to finish at five o'clock and have an evening um and I think it's only nowadays when you come through like a rough period of time like lockdown covid you know years of grafting that you do you appreciate the importance of something as simple as getting up on a Sunday morning and not having to rush around anywhere or finishing at 5 p.m and your biggest issue being picking milk up on the way home you know yeah. So, yeah, I think you know, life life has kind of sort of taught us all, isn't it, over the last couple of years that life is too short. And if I'm honest with you, that's one of the decisions that kind of veered me away from football. You know, I I left Gillingham um, sort of through COVID um, after a little bit of a falling out at the club um, with the previous manager. There was a lot of sort of political stuff going on, so I decided that I felt you know. I had more self-respect for myself than to just work under that regime and I left. I didn't have a job to go to. Um, at the time, we was in the middle of a lockdown. My private clinic was obviously sort of closed because, you know, nobody was seeing patients. Um, and then an opportunity came to go to Cholton. And it's, um, it's, it's difficult because, again, you know, I really, really like everybody at Cholton um, that I worked with. And I have a lot of time and respect for many people there. But I think when you're within sport, you're working within a bubble. So at that time, I had nothing to do. I was working full-time hours. As time went on, the discussions with the club became that the injury list was a bit smaller, so I wasn't needed all the time. So my contract went to a part-time contract. Um, and then suddenly, as the world began to open up a bit more, my own decisions were, right, I've got part-time sort of hours here and I need to rebuild business. And it never went down well sometimes if I was being asked on a Tuesday evening at 9.30pm, can I come in Wednesday morning? If I'd then not heard from the club and I'd made plans to see clients or had other work going on, 
I had to almost adopt to look after number one mentality. But then that upsets the people at the club because they need you. So, you know, through those times, I you know, especially when the role went to part time, I was doing an awful lot of juggling and cancelling clients and moving clients or seeing them in the evenings. You know, it went through a real roller coaster for me. So my time at Charlton, you know, year one in the first team was working with just the first team um, sort of day to day. And then the under 23s physio left. So I was doing first team sort of rehab on a daily basis and then doing the under 23s games, which also then involved traveling up and down the country. Then it went to part time with the first team, part time with the under 23s. And then the off season came and um, they still didn't have physio. So I was in all summer while everyone was off. And then rolled for, sort of off the back of the summer into some sort of further part-time work with the first team. And then sort of gradually phased out as the injury list become non-existent, which again is great. But, you know, you then have to really look around you, like I said, again, about the security of the job you're in. Because at any given moment, you know, it could be, I'm really sorry, we don't need you now. Um, you know, they've needed you for... 12 18 months 24 months whatever it is but you know jobs in sport are less secure than a say a clinic role or an nhs role so they're, they're just other little things to factor in when you're when you're making your decisions about you know if you're a first team physio for example um you're probably not going to want to go and get a 20-year mortgage if it's a volatile industry you know you're probably going to sort of rent or if you've if you've got a partner who's got a secure job you you need some form of stability because you know managers come and go and there's no guarantee that staff survive really yeah look again I agree with everything you say there I think uh, first of all I hate I hate it when you get like a call saying I need to do this or can you do this because then you're and, and you've already had plans for the next day and it's but you don't want to say no do you yeah I think that's the thing as well when you know that you're by saying no, it could cause a ripple effect or it could have a negative effect. Like I said, you know, in academy football and things like that, the pressures aren't there. If you're working in a first team environment and you're saying, no, I can't work on a Wednesday, um, that's the difference between the players getting rehabbed or not. And, you know, the managers from above, they're not going to accept the players not being in. So, like I said, there was many times that I cancelled lists, cancelled clients, cancelled extra work uh, to then go in and do it um, for a fraction of the cost that I could have earned by doing my private work. So the sacrifices people make are often not spoken about. And I think that's what probably gives the sport like a glamorous look about it. Yeah. Um, and like I said, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of positives about it. You know, you get to stay in some nice hotels, you get to go see some lovely stadiums, experience some nice atmospheres, but you know, that doesn't pay for, you know, a summer holiday necessarily does it you know there's a difference between paying your bills and then you know having savings or going out with your friends every friday night and not having to worry about getting up to travel the next day yeah it's just yeah like i said it's the tip of the iceberg what yeah, no, of course. it's just what you don't see is it's um yeah very um yeah yeah uh, sorry if anyone is listening we're not putting you off of uh but no, no, and I, I certainly, yeah, I certainly hope it hasn't sounded negative because, like I said, there's a lot of positives. I think 
for me though, what I've seen over sort of things like social media, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm active on LinkedIn and Twitter and things like that. And you almost, you get a lot of people almost want to come out of university, um, do, do a year or so's work or, you know, work at say national league or semi-professional level. And then they want to make the leap straight up. But I think the reality is you, you really, really do need to work and get some foundations, you know, get the experiences, act like a sponge, work around people, speak to people, listen to podcasts, you know, read blogs, you know, attend webinars, every bit of knowledge you can soak up and then gain your confidence clinically. Because like you say, once you step into that sort of first team environment, it's just a different pressure. You know, the role is still the same as it would be, at, say, I don't know, um, National League South. But, you know, you're you can't you can't sort of hesitate on your decisions. And um, I think a lot of people, like I said, they want to get to that level quickly, but they're not necessarily willing to be patient enough for it. And that's the only message I'd, I'd sort of really give people is just bide your time, because if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. You know, you know yourself, having worked through sport, you meet good people, you maintain connections, you, you stay friends with people, people move around within sport. So there's always going to be an opportunity that you might have worked with someone who moves on to a bigger club, who might, you know, throw your name into the hat for a role. Um, but I just don't think anyone can sort of look to get there too fast, especially in league football. You know, it's um, it's a bit of a pressure cooker, I suppose. How did you deal with that pressure? Um, I felt personally, I felt I thrived off of it. But the reason I feel I thrived off of it is because I feel I was ready for it. You know, I was chomping at the bit. I wanted a role like that. I, I was a senior physio within the NHS. Clinically, I felt that I'm very sound with my decisions. I'd worked, I felt like I'd done the groundwork within sport. Um, you know, I'd done all of the, you know, the years of kind of grafting in the academy and stuff like that. So I just wanted a chance to prove myself. And once I got that chance, I gave it 110%. You know, I was the first one in every day, you know, last one out. I would do all, you know, additional programming. Again, you communicate with players out of hours and you just go above and beyond because you want to give yourself a good name. You know, you want people to say he's a good physio or he's done a good job or I can trust him or he's really helped me here. So I think, you know, you're going to go one of two ways with it. You're going to either find it very stressful and it's going to sort of, you know, niggle away at you. And then you have to find your own ways of dealing with those stresses. But like I say, for me, I always see every challenge I'm given. I try to throw myself into it headlong. And I think, like I said, because I'd been patient over the years, um, I didn't necessarily feel the stress. I just enjoyed the ride. A lot there I can relate to. Um, hopefully others, uh, they can hopefully use this information and uh, make it like a calculated decision. Um, but yeah, definitely, yeah, if you get the opportunity to do it, great life yeah. experience, great life experience. That that's it. And even if you only did it for a couple of years, I mean, yeah. If I if I give you a rough example of a typical day in the life of a full time physio in sport, so let's say Mon Monday, 
you would start half past seven in the morning. You'd probably meet with a manager. You'd have your breakfast. You'd do your planning. Players get there around nine. Players are generally asked if they've got any niggles or they need strappings and bits and pieces. That gets done early, sort of nine 9.30. They're probably out to train about 10.30, um, by which time you're either in the gym with players, they're working through rehab programs. If it's quiet, you're out on the training pitch. You're wandering around, getting some fresh air, watching the session, monitoring players who are maybe just coming back from injuries. Um, you get back, maybe a couple of hours of training. You have lunch, you've got an afternoon session, you know, soft tissue work, um, recovery work. The S&C coach will often, you know, do like an afternoon gym session, that which is periodized. And the players are generally getting away about half past two. And at that point, as a physio, you've probably got a lot of paperwork to do, maybe some planning for the next day, maybe prepping for a trip. Um, so you generally get away about four, four thirty. So again, not a horrific day if things are going well. And obviously schedules are always altered to change. Um, Tuesdays, if you're not travelling for an away game, then you're generally in same routine on that day. Wednesday is traditionally a player's day off within sport. Um, but again, injury and rehab might be that you're in. I don't know, eight a.m. till one. As a physio, Thursday is a repeat of Monday and then Friday is either a lighter training session and again, everyone's done by about two or you're travelling. So if you're travelling to an away trip, you're generally leaving about 10, 10.30 and travelling to wherever you need to be. Um, and then there's a bit of work and prep work at the hotel. And then you've got games on Saturdays. So really, as a as a physio, your best opportunity of a day off is a Sunday. Um, but again, if you pick up some heavy knocks and niggles and things on a Saturday, you can bet your sort of bottom dollar that you're in again on a Sunday morning for at least two, three hours. Just trying to, you know, again, turn them around quickly. And that that process really kind of runs from, let's say, you know, late June, early July when preseason starts right through to about early May. So you've only really got about a six week window where, again, the pressure's off. And that's also only if there's no injuries. So if you've got, if you've picked up an ACL injury in February, you're unfortunately going to be in most of the summer working with that player. So again, you're, you're kind of downtime's impacted. So again, it's not to put anyone off. It's just so anyone listening can you know, write those things down and look and go, well, actually, that's quite a busy week. And it's quite consistently busy across the whole year. So, again, you know, you're not you're not you're not going to go on free holidays through the season because it's just not the dumb thing. It's not allowed. You, you don't you don't sort of really get annual leave through the season. You get a chunk of time in the summer, which doesn't really functionally work too well for you know family life you know if there's females wanting to go into it that have got children you've got factory in childcare. so you know again it's just it's really to just try and give like a a realistic view of what you would be dealing with so that people don't go into these roles and create sort of problems for their lifestyles yeah another again excellent insight so when you do have time off your first during the week or or at the end of the season, but what are your, what do you like to do to, to chill out? Um, so for me, so 
I, I always tried my hardest to keep Sundays as the days off. Um, and it would just be, you know, quite a relaxed day, whether it would be, you know, going for a roast dinner with the kids, um, you know, taking them swimming, you know, if they wasn't with me, just a day off to go to the gym, have a swim, get out and have a walk, just clear your head really, because the week, the week's work kind of impacts you. So you try to keep your days off. Um, for me personally, used to try to be as unfootball related as possible. I didn't really want to watch football, didn't want to read Sky Sports News, didn't really want to think too much about it, just wanted a complete switch off. Um, and if it was the summer, you know, you try to get a couple of holidays in um, where you just go away for a week at a time and really just get your feet up, get some sun and enjoy it, really. Yeah, I think the important message there, I like the uh, just switching off from football completely. Yeah, I think it's important because you spend so much time thinking about it. Like I said earlier on, you you kind of you live within a bubble and it's not a bad bubble, but you just have to think about it a lot. So when you get an opportunity to not think about it, you take it as much as possible. I think, um, you know, prior to working in full time sport, I used to be a sort of person I'd have every football game on Sky Sports going, you know, La Liga, you know, Serie A, the French League, whatever was on, I'd put it on. And I think, you know, you then suddenly find that you, you stop watching match of the day, you stop keeping up with transfers. Everything comes as a bit of a surprise. If it's out of out of the remit of your club, you, you forget everything that goes on. Yeah, I think yeah, I think I found that out. I don't, you know what? I don't think I've watched match of the day for ages. No, that's it. And one one thing one thing that I find that you, you struggle to not do is you you know, you become a an unofficial supporter of the club you're working for, you know, so I'm a West Ham fan and I used to have a season ticket, absolutely crazy Hammers fan. And then as soon as I started, started working full time in, in, in football, you know, you stop looking out for the results, you stop taking as much care and attention for your team, but then you've got the passion is almost invested into your current role. So, you know, a half joke now that I'm a West Ham slash Gillingham slash Charlton fan because you do, you, you get a real nice affinity for the environment and and you kind of can't help but almost fall in love with the place a little bit. Uh, I don't know if I've got that for Charlton, mate. <laughs> I guess, yeah, it depends on experiences, doesn't it? Five tips that I would recommend um, or sort of strongly suggest someone wanting to get into that sort of level of sport or role. Uh, number one, ask a lot of questions. So every person I worked under or alongside, I always um, respected them for their experience and their knowledge because, uh, you know, if you think you're the best, you're going to fail. So you can always learn from people around you. And I think you find that people don't mind you asking questions. That for me would be number one. Number two, be a good communicator. Um, be very open. Be very honest. Um, be very truthful um, with you know staff, players, and you know wider, wider sort of staff. Because again, you've got to build relationships. Um, so communication's key. Um, three, I think, is is going to be you know put yourself above and beyond. So whatever you can do as the little extras to stand out. So whether that's, again, you know, webinars, additional courses, um, you know, you, I've, I've often had people sort of message me on Twitter, LinkedIn, asking for advice. 
I'm always open-minded to giving it to people because they gave it to me. So again, don't be afraid to ask someone a question just because their CV looks strong or, you know, if they're in a role that you think you want to be in one day, you know, ask them, what did you do? How did you get there? You know, any, any sort of tips for me? Um, for, I think, like I said, you know, I think be sure that you can commit to the work because the one thing that you don't want to do is step into a role, uh, realize that it's eating up too much of your time or you don't feel it's convenient because you'll you'll give yourself a bad reputation you know people you know within sport it's a small world they'll remember if um if you've only been there a month and decided it's not for you that's going to stick so just be very very sure um and like i said i mean number five for me would probably just be no matter what role no matter what level just enjoy every minute because when i look back to when i very first started um I was doing pitch side with the under 12s and I was, ex I was ex excited then to start and work alongside them as I was for any first team game I've ever covered. And, but that time goes quick. So before you know it, those years do roll by. And I think if you enjoy it from the start, like we said, right at the start of the podcast, it's not going to feel like hard work. If you enjoy what you're doing, you're going to be happier. And then I think you're going to produce better work. Yeah, yeah, I think I think the last one there's the most important one. Enjoy it. Yeah, very much so. Like like we said, there's swings, there's roundabouts, there's there's pros and cons, there's goods and bads. You know, like I said, if you know what you're going into and you know what the industry entails and you know what the roles entail, um, you choose to go into it. Nobody ever forces anyone into these roles. You know, you choose to go into it. So I think the least you can do is just enjoy it. Thank, thank you very much for Again, I think yeah, I think it's great insight of what it's like to work in sport, especially at that level. And uh, yeah, I hope it just helps people that want to get into it, help them make decisions. Hopefully, take yeah. this on board, have a little think about it. Hopefully, you can add to their planning. Or if, if there's anybody that is listening, working, who is working in in first sport, if you agree with it, fantastic. I'd love to hear your your views on it. Yeah, very much so. And like I said, you know, one of my points there was, you know, always ask questions. Um, anyone that does listen to this, I'm always quite open minded. If anyone wants to ask any questions or anything in a, a bit more detail, um, feel free to reach out to me on social media. Thank you, Gary.